Welcome to Out of Ratio, the podcast where we break free from the constraints of traditional thinking and embrace the extraordinary world of early childhood education. I'm your host, and together, let's embark on a journey that challenges the status quo, pushes boundaries, and nurtures the seeds of innovation. So get ready for captivating interviews, thought-provoking discussions, and inspiring stories that will challenge your perceptions and ignite your passion for early childhood education. Let's get started. Welcome to Out of Ratio, the show that explores the ever-evolving landscape of early childhood education. I'm your host, Sam. And I'm Justin. Today we have a very special guest who is deeply involved in shaping the early childhood education space. Our guest, Maisa Williams-Foote, is a passionate advocate of diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's the Community Development Manager at the Council for Professional Recognition, aka the CDA Council, and a member of the Georgia Association of the Education of Young Children's Board. Maisa, thank you for joining us today. Would you please tell our listeners a bit about your background and kind of your journey in ECE? Sure. I'm so excited to be here today. Who would have thought, um, Justin, when I met you, what was it, almost a year now, um, at uh, the Region 7 Head Start Conference that I would be here um, hosted on your new podcast. So congratulations on that. I would say I'm someone that is an untraditional early childhood professional. Um, I had no intentions of working in early childhood at all. Um, I received my bachelor's in law and justice from Rowan University with a minor in social justice, and I was headed to law school, and that was the plan, right? Um, But in the meantime, I was working for the Juvenile Justice Commission for the state of New Jersey, um, attending a church that had a small nonprofit in Trenton, New Jersey, and the pastor, which was also at the time the chair of the board, they had this great uh, music and arts a program for after school children uh, to come like right after school and learn about different instruments and singing and um, film and all of the creative arts. And so their music coordinator uh, resigned and they were looking for a new person and thought that I would be great to just carry the program for about a year. And my initial thought was like, how old was I at the time? 22. Um, and I was just like, no, I I don't like children, um, (laughs) at all. And so I was, no, I I can't do that. Oh, you're so organized. We just need someone to get us, you know, up to speed over another year. And I said, okay, so I agree to that. About a year into that, um, they received a state uh, grant to run a state pre-K program. And they needed a director, just like on the books director that had their degree. And of course, I met the need. And again, I'm like, I already told you I don't like children. Now you're going to have me work with little children. Okay, this must be a joke. So I did it. Um, And in the meantime, I got married, um, pregnant with my daughter, and I was taking a class on brain development. And at the time, I'm just going through the motions until I go to law school. Um, But I think it was something about carrying a life within me and learning about the importance of brain development and everything that happens before birth um, that made me really fall in love with early childhood. And I said, you know, this may be a sign or it was multiple signs, um, but this is a field that I should really consider. And so I stayed in that pre-K through third grade certification program and I've been here ever since. So that's my journey into early childhood. Um, Since being the director at that program, um, I transitioned and started working with a small um, child care resource and referral agency in the northern part of New Jersey. And my focus when I first came on, believe it or not, was to do CDA instruction. And now I work at the council. So I just feel like it's a full circle. <laughs> but <laughs> I went from there um, to work with a federal contractor for Head Start. I served as an infant toddler specialist. Um, And then started doing some early child consultation, relocated from New Jersey to Atlanta and started working with another CCRNR um, in northern Georgia and then transitioned to the Office of Head Start, where I worked in the Region 4 as a contract program manager for eight years. Um, And then transitioned to the council, where I serve as the community development manager uh, for the last year and a half. So I um, always joke and say I've done everything except for ride the bus, drive the bus. Um, But um, I love my journey because I've been able to be in the classroom with preschoolers, like sitting down 
doing circle time, reading books, um, and then doing the administration for that program, writing grants, working for the nonprofit. And then I went into the CCRNR world, um, did class observation and CDA instruction, and then worked through Eckers and Fickers and Sakers and um, doing environmental rating scale observations and assessments, and then moving on to the Head Start world, which opened up my eyes to so many um, new pathways for early childhood. And so I think it's uniquely positioned me for the position I'm in now, working with our community investors in the CDA and how um, I'm able to touch those different facets of the industry so easily because I've, I feel like I've been there. So I can relate. Yeah, Maisa, from our interactions in that in that meeting in Kansas City a year or so ago to now, I feel like every time I we're at the same conference, we always get a, a chance to connect and to click. And I think I I just wanted to say I feel very grateful to know you and to really um, get to experience kind of secondhand experience all the experiences that you've lived. So just shout out to you. Very grateful to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I feel the same. When I came into early childhood, I feel like we sort of had a similar experience because I uh, I do like children, but <laughs> I... I took like an oath to myself at a very young age because my mom was a preschool director. Um, I have a sister who is almost eight years younger than me. I was like, I will never work with little kids by the time, you know, she was two or three. I was psh, I was over it. I was like, no more little children. Um, and then when I had my son, I ended up working um, in an a preschool and I just fell in love with it. The connections and the relationships that you make with the kids and the other teachers and the parents and families and what you learn about them and how you're able to help them. And, you know, over time you see like their ups and downs and you see them have more kids or, you know, welcome new people into their family. And it just, it's such a special feeling mm -hmm. that I feel like you just, it's just different than it is everywhere else, right? And I love that people always point out that people who work in early education have huge hearts. And part of me thinks it's because you have to. And the other part of me feels like it's because we're drawn into it because little kids have the biggest hearts too. And so we just like connect on a different level. But what I found really quickly after coming into a field where I had no background in education. So I quickly figured out that in early childhood education, there are so many different career pathways, which you touched on, right? That you've kind of done a little bit of everything and it can be really exciting, but it can also be kind of overwhelming when you think of like, okay, I, I've done XYZ, I'm interested in doing something different, but I don't really know where to go next. Can you share a little bit about your insights on some of the different career opportunities um, or maybe next steps that are available to educators in early childhood? Sure. As much as I um, adore and appreciate and value our early child educators um, that are in the classroom every day with our little ones, like I said, you know, on the carpet, reading books or mm -hmm. changing diapers, singing songs, growing, you know, their brain development, focusing on their cognitive development. That is so key and important. So as I express these different pathways, I definitely don't want to take away from that um, because I want people to understand the importance of that role, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to diminish it in any way. But when I think about early childhood, I really think about it as any other business and that we need every facet, every industry in early childhood. There's not an industry or a field that we don't touch, right? Um, whether that's marketing and branding. So we need people, um, professionals to help either our organization or a program to get out their vision, their vision and their mission statement. We need administrators, right, to run um, programs efficiently and effectively. We need trainer trainers that are um, versed in adult learning theories that can help with professional development, not just doing the training, but developing curricula for adult learners. We need people to design our facilities. The worst thing is designing an entire early childhood facility that's not meant for little people. I've seen that 
multiple times. Um, so when I think about early childhood and the pathways, yes, we, we definitely want our infant toddler um, educators and we definitely want our preschool educators, our after school educators that are working with children from kindergarten or third grade. But we also need administrators and directors and those um, with a financial background. Even when we think about governance and policy, right, and advocates, we also need people in those professions. So I don't, I really don't think there's a profession that early childhood um, educators cannot scale up to, depending on their passion and their goals and what they want to achieve in life. So we say that the CDA is the net is the first best step or the first step, right? The best first step. But I also think about it as the best next step because I found that people like myself that started with like a BA in law and justice on my way to law school, that CDA doing CDA instruction, even though I did not obtain my CDA at the time, and that is one of my goals to get my CDA, um, is I learned so much about early childhood and competency because it is a competency-based credential, right? And so when I think about people that may be already on their way to getting their bachelor's in finance, well, we need people that are fiscal experts in early childhood, right? And so they can use that bachelor's degree to support a large Head Start program with securing funding, with writing grants. It's just so many possibilities. It's, to me, it's just endless. I love how you mentioned Head Start. Uh, I'm a second generation Head Start alum. So when Head Start was rolled out in Iowa, my grandmother was my mother's teacher. And Ooh. then later on, I went to Head Start um, as a kid. Um, but like you said, there's in Head Start, because it's a, a federal program, mm -hmm. we need policy advocates. We need grant writers. We need all these different things to build a structure. And I think that's something that often gets overlooked as a, a teacher. Um, you know, perhaps a teacher would go in not really like, oh, I like early childhood education, but I'm not sure how I can grow with it. Right. Um, but taking it and saying, okay, well, I really like early childhood education and I really like math. Okay, mm. let's figure out what you can do to couple those things. Maybe uh, you you want to go and do accounting, or maybe you want to do develop a curriculum um, that is based around STEM stuff. You know, I mean, the, the possibilities are really, really endless. Mm. Um, but I think what we see is oftentimes in the industry, it's like, I'm either a teacher or a director. When in reality, it's, you could be a teacher, you could be a director, you could be a um, an area manager, a multi-site leader. That's mm -hmm. if you still want to be in the classroom. But there's so many other things, and there's there's a lot of job openings on like, like at CCR and R's, uh, child care resource and referral. They do great work. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of we need people who are passionate about early childhood education at departments of health, um, in and around different organizations. But in each state, the the governing body of early childhood education is is different. Sometimes it's health and human services. Sometimes it's the Department of Education. Sometimes it's um, Department of Early Learning. Some and you know there's there's just such a, a tangled web of possibilities that are just ready to be untangled by early childhood educators. No, definitely. And when we think about even a Department of Defense, right? So military children and their and families. Um, need support from early childhood. And so when I say it's endless, I really mean that it's it's endless. And I don't know if as a field, we're doing um, a great PR job <laughs> to young people coming out of high school, um, young adults going into college to see early childhood as a profession, right? Where you can truly have a professional journey in life. Look at our CEO, Dr. Calvin Moore, started as a teacher assistant, you know, got his CDA, and now he's the CEO of a national organization, right, where we just um, celebrated 1 million CDAs. And so I think that is so important that we do a better job of showcasing the different career paths that someone can have when you enter into early childhood without diminishing the importance of the educator. Again, that's um, serving directly the children and families, right, on that center-based level or family mm -hmm. childhood or home-based visitor, but looking into the different pathways that they can explore. Yeah. Well, here's a, a, a question for you, Maisa. How does helping individuals, whether they're at the teacher level or whether they're a director, how does helping them find their pathway contribute to the growth and development of early childhood education in general? What do you think there? In general, I think it, it helps us to professionalize the field. 
Um, and it also helps us to recruit and retain um, talent in, in, in these different areas that we spoke about. Mm -hmm. And it also answers some of the difficulties that we're having around compensation. I was talking um, to a director previously about helping um, her teachers feel valued and retaining great teachers, especially in a small center where they don't have area managers and coordinators. So there's very limited growth. And I asked her, do you try to find out the passions of your teachers? So if you have an educator that um, is really into art, have you tapped into that and seeing how she can maybe develop an art program for your preschool, right? Where she's primarily with her children, with her group, but maybe once a week she runs an art class for the preschoolers or art class for the toddlers. Have we really tapped into their passions enough to um, broaden the scope of the work that they're doing at that program, but also so people can see, well, there may not be a lot of growth in the field here, but there's other things that I can do outside of being with my children in my program. I can also, if they develop the art program for your preschool, that can help them to become a social entrepreneur in their community where they can develop yeah. a community program for preschoolers um, with art, right? Through a local art center. Or they can start their own business and doing art classes on Saturday. We're looking at how we can pay teachers more, but are we actually empowering them to see themselves um, as the talented and gifted individuals that they are? And there mm -hmm. may be entrepreneurs sitting right in our programs that could supplement their income with these other avenues, but are we helping them to explore themselves? Yeah. That's a fabulous point. I... Two things. One, I always used to tell the teachers at my center, like, bring what you love to the classroom, because if you are having fun, the kids are going to have fun, too. Like, and, and it's just going to be great for everybody. Like, if you if you love art, make everything an art project. Find a way to make everything, you know, colorful or messy or whatever, <laughs> whatever you love about art. Um, and the second thing is I, I really liked what you said about empowering our teachers to do, you know, I think so often we find people who are like, there's that just word, right? Oh, I'm I'm just a teacher, or I'm I'm just in my first year, or I just I just came on. Um, and that was part of what I loved about being an administrator was telling somebody who thought, you know, oh well, I've never I've never been in the classroom before, I've never taught before, being able to go to them and be like you are what a natural you're fantastic at this let me kind of help guide you to like what's next because you're ready for that next step let me let me show you and then there'd always be kind of that like pushback of like oh i don't like i don't know if i'm there yet i don't know if i'm ready and then having the opportunity to open their eyes to something like the cda um which was i used to love bringing that into the conversation at my center because I think when we start talking about programs or certifications or next steps people start to get kind of nervous around it um and like you said empowering them that like you are ready for this you can handle this and I'm gonna be here to help you if you need that safety net like I've got you other people have got you too but encouraging them to, if you love this, if you're excited about it, let me show you more and opening those doors or showing them where those doors are to help them get there because they're not always easy to find. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And I, I just, my mind started racing as, as an entrepreneur of how all the different directions you could go by empowering your teachers. Like, mm -hmm. oh, you could do an after school class or let's say the person loves dogs. Maybe mm -hmm. you could do, you know what I mean? There's like a gazillion different ways to empower your teachers when you take a step back and you mindfully evaluate their talents and their skill sets and say, okay, well, we want to pay you more. That's not really in the cards right now, but let's figure out a way where we can say, hey, let's use this things you're, that you're already applying and let's help you grow as an individual. Obviously, there's there's some kind of boundaries there between employer and employee. But I think being able to say, hey, so-and-so, you really love math. I know the, at the school district, they are looking for tutors. You could tutor and pick up extra hours, you know, and they pay X, whatever. Um, 
And that could be a really great way to show teachers from an administrator level, teachers that you really, really care about them as a human. You know what I mean? You care that not that they're just in a classroom keeping you in ratio, but they are Mm -hmm. that they're people and they have needs and they they enjoy early childhood education. But helping them to really grow professionally is key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you care, the- you care about them as a person and um, and how they're growing. And I don't want to take away from, you know, the compensation point because we definitely yeah. need to pay our educators way more yeah, than absolutely. we're paying them now. Um, but it's so it's not only about like a side job to bring in more money, but it's also about cultivating that gift and that passion um, that they have and those things that make them happy. Years ago, when I ran that state pre-K um, program and operated and it was a small program, we had a maintenance com- company come in every day and clean. But one of our teacher assistants just loved to clean. Like she would, she had a smile on her face whenever she was cleaning. Um, and she was excellent at it. And we were paying this company a nice amount of money every month to come in um, and clean it. So I went to her and I said, you know, we're looking for a new vendor. Would you consider, you know, being a vendor for us and and doing this? And she was so happy and just like, yes, I would love to. Um, And for years, that's what she loved. She loved doing it. And that helped her to to do that for us. And then another church and it, it built on another program. And so that's a way that we can empower, you know, people is like you said, finding that passion and the goals that they have for themselves and seeing how we can support them. Yeah. One thing my mom taught me, she was a director for years and um, she used to say that her center, she never expected anyone to stay forever. And that what she wanted it to be was a safe place for her people to land and that it was her job. She felt like as a director to help them find whatever was next. And if they wanted to stay forever, they were more than welcome to stay forever. But I just loved her mindset that I think they're with directors. A lot of time there can be a scarcity mindset. And I understand that, especially with like high turnover rates and compensation and things like that. Um, But I think that point about caring about people as human beings and knowing that their well-being is more than just what happens at your center. It's what's happening outside their mental health, their physical health, you know, mm-hmm. and and what comes next for them in life. And when you do care about those things, I think it makes such a huge impact on how people feel and the quality of the people who want to come and work for you. And, you know, if somebody's leaving and they have a smile on their face, I feel like that has that says something huge about your leadership and the program and the community that you've built. Um, and parents, they, and other teachers, they notice that stuff. They see, you know, they see if people are happy or unhappy and, you know, what that, like, like the vibes when you walk into a place, if the vibes are bad, you know, and kids especially are really like, they feel all that stuff. And so if there's tension when they walk in the door, they're going to get it. If it's joyful when they walk in the door, they're going to feel that. And so I love that piece about just caring goes beyond the walls of your school. Mm-hmm. It goes, you know, with people when they walk out the door. And um, and your point about helping people create programs, mm-hmm. in my head, I know Justin's like, my head spinning as like entrepreneur ideas. My So I have to, I love my daughter's school. I always give them like little shout outs, but um, they have a teacher who she loves yoga and she started a yoga program at the school um, and made it free for all the parents. So like we could sign our kids up to do Miss Jazzy's yoga, which my daughter is obsessed with Miss Jazzy and her yoga. She does it at home all the time. Um, But it, it created this like additional quality that mm-hmm. as a parent, I'm like, okay, so I could do these other programs that cost more than I'm paying, <laughs> which, which is not cheap. I think anybody who pays for childcare can attest to that. Um, but like, what an incredible quality piece they've created by offering not just another option. So, you know, there's art, there's soccer or um, different sports or PE type stuff that they do. And now they, they're going to offer yoga, but it, that piece is going to be free. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I just feel like you're giving something to your parents too. And so you're creating new quality. New quality might mean that you can 
raise your tuition. And that might mean that you can, you know, raise your teacher hourly wages or salaries. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, we're, it's a team effort, right? We're all like, teamwork makes the dream work. I think that was the, (laughs) that became like the motto of one of our our episodes. And I I just keep going back to it because it's true, right? It's all kind of, if we work together, we can really, you know, I'm not, we're not going to solve all the world's problems, but I think we can, you know, we can take some steps forward, especially, you know, one, one thing that I don't, so I worked in small center. It was a one-off. We were a church preschool is very different working in a franchise or, or a large center. Um, right. Two of my colleagues came from that background and it has been very eye-opening for me to hear their experiences and how it's very different. But when you do have that smaller school, maybe smaller staff, maybe less students, you can, you have a little more autonomy to make some of those decisions. And I think, you know, that could be a really interesting way to search out, you know, can we up the quality to up to help with the compensation piece? Mm-hmm. Throwing ideas out, guys. <laughs> Great ideas. <laughs> We're like solving the world problems right here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I think That's this is this is the cradle of innovation <laughs> in early childhood <laughs> education. <laughs> I am a hardcore deal shopper, and one of the reasons I love this time of year is because everything on my wish list ends up on sale. If you have professional development on the wish list for your center, we have some deals that will add some extra holiday magic to your day. Check the show notes or head over to BertelsonEducation.com to see our holiday season specials, including $500 off an annual center membership and discounted add-ons like our parenting courses and automatic reporting. We hope you'll check them out. And whether you believe that Christmas doesn't start until after Thanksgiving or that Christmas season is free reign as soon as it hits November 1st, we wish you a very merry holiday season. One thing that I, I love about the CDA is that it's really, really practical. Um, and that's one thing that Bertelson Education has in common with the CDA is that we try to make all of our courses, all of everything we do at Bertelson Education is practical and is engaging. At least that's the goal. Um, and one thing that I want to touch on is the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece that's been added or kind of folded into the CDA. Maisa, um, will you talk a little bit about that? Um, that's something that Sam and I are both very passionate about, increasing the the DEI-ish or the DEI-ness of early childhood education. Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. Um, so what was really unique to me is when I came onto the council and we started talking about um, how we were launching our new essentials and making sure that equity was a big piece of it, because I went back 16 years ago, and I was just like, oh, we were talking about, you know, cultural competency and responsiveness throughout our, you know, our CDA 120 clock hours. Um, And then I went back 12 years ago when I first came to, um, to Georgia, same thing. But what I noticed was that wasn't the same for everyone, right? And so we had, um, I had the revelation that there are other um, programs that may be doing CDA training uh, and professional development that is not including, you know, equity um, as a centralized theme throughout every last, you know, 120 clock hours. Because I think that it's important to include, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion in whether you're talking about language development, because that involves working with families from different ethnic backgrounds and may have different languages? Or are we talking about, you know, equity and inclusion when it talks about serving children with different abilities? Um, and so to me, it, it's never like a one-off uh, subject area. Like, okay, we're going to talk about equity today. And then that's all we're going to talk about just for this 10 hours. And then we're going to move on. And, you know, we, we did it. Yay. We did equity and we moved on. And so the council wanted to ensure that the experience that someone like me had at the CCRs that I worked with, um, where we ensured that at the time the term was more cultural competency and cultural responsiveness was throughout and embedded into all of uh, the different subject areas 
the council partnered with the Children's Equity Project to make sure that it was embedded it, embedded throughout the new edition of Essentials, um, from the types of books we recommend to the techniques uh, for settling conflicts to talking to families. We honed in on our focus on how teachers can use um, the classroom, right, to have a maximum impact by giving children a sense of social justice when they are still small. It doesn't take away from all of the other wonderful things that educators have come to love about the Essentials Workbook um, and the Essential Textbook, but it now includes a section on cultural capital, um, which we urge teachers to view young children through a strength-based lens and, and recognize the cultural rich richness that they contribute um, to the classroom, to the environment, and to the culture. And so this partnership with the Children's Equity Project um, has really elevated equity in, in this and Jules, but also our focus on it throughout everything that we do. So we think about that and how we brand, you know, what images do we use? Do we ensure that um, if we're marketing to a certain audience where we know that there may be a difference in language, how are we making sure that people um, find the content that we put out um, as accessible to them, right? Through whether it be languages or different cultures. And so the council is focused on equity in this new way. Um, we we are hearing great things from the field about how people, you know, um, are engaging with the new essentials in this new section. And so we hope that it serves as a platform for teachers to know that as they're going through their 120 clock hours, it's, it's not an off subject right over here that we mm. just do in a few hours and, and it's done with, but it's seamlessly throughout every single subject area, every single functional area um, now. And so we're really proud of this new move by the council. I feel that the, the idea that the CDA council is kind of the first step and the next step for early childhood educators and the cultural competency or rather a focus on DEI mm -hmm. or that the council is putting is really, really awesome because I think of individuals who, from marginalized communities that college may not be an option or in, in their mind they say, okay, well, I'm never right. going to mm -hmm. be able to go to college. I'm never going to be able to do this. I mean, for example, perhaps there's um, a recent arrival to the United States, but they, they really feel that early childhood education could be a, an opportunity for them. And it's like, well, the they feel welcome and included in their process of getting the CDA because of this different, uh, because of this integration of these DEI principles. So I think I, I'm having a hard time expressing that, but super, I think that's super. <laughs> no, and and if I can, um, you know, touch on what I feel that you're expressing, and I, and if I'm getting it wrong, let me know. But it's not just a benefit to um, the children. It's also a benefit to the educator that they themselves feel included. They see themselves when they're turning the pages of essentials and is talking about the importance of including all families. They see themselves as the all families that are being included um, in this work, and. I, I really believe that early childhood is equity when done right. And I believe that the CDA um, is equity when done right, because it gives that opportunity. Like you said, everyone's not going to college, nor is that the right fit for them. Right. And so this is a unifying framework, no matter how you're coming into the field, whether you're coming in and you're, and you plan to use the CDA as your first step, or maybe you plan to use it as your last step, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is, it's, it's, it's unifying. It's that foundation for everyone and anyone that wants to come into the field. And of course, when you first open the Essentials textbook, that's what the council wants you to feel when you open it, that you're included. Yeah. And I think that the CDA pairs so well with the Head Start program because mm -hmm. of one of the wraparound services or kind of the, the myriad of services that Head Start offers to families and also the, the demographic that Head Start serves of individuals and families with lower income that meet a certain threshold. And I think being able to help those families to recognize that they're seen and they're included when in, in other situations they may not be. Mm -hmm. is I think is really crucial for creating more equity in our society. Agree. I agree. I want to switch gears just a little bit because I think 
DEI is something that we hear a lot about. Um, And like you said, there's that cultural competence piece that anybody who's been around ECE for a long time, we've, we've heard about. And, um, you know, I think there's the little things that we all kind of gather as we're in classrooms, like, oh, here's what I need to do here. Here's what I need to do here. I would love to hear from you, Maisa, just like some practical tips for teachers in their classrooms or for directors in their centers of how they can really start to take actionable steps towards having a a greater focus on DEI. And and maybe, Mm -hmm. hold on, Mm -hmm. maybe I went too far. Maybe (laughs) for, (laughs) can we first, I definitely want to get there, but first, can you explain the difference between the three things that make up DEI for any of our listeners who have heard the term, but maybe haven't had it broken down. Right. Um, so I, I see it all how it works in concert together, honestly, um, more recently. So I'll do my best. Um, respect and diversity is really a respect of the different uh, cultures and backgrounds, whether that is the ethnic background, racial background, it can go all the way down to socioeconomic or the makeup of the family, whether it's a two-parent household, one-parent household. It's making sure that we acknowledge, we recognize, and we respect, right? Um, but then <clears throat> equity is re- removing the barriers. To me, equity is removing the barriers to success and ensuring that it's not a one size fits all. Equity is not equality. Um, if I need to go to school, right, and I live, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 blocks from the school and I can walk to school versus a family that lives 20 minutes from the school and there's no public transportation, there's no way giving my family that can walk to school and the other family that lives 20 minutes away from the school the same type of transportation policy, whether that be that we don't provide transportation or we do, that's that's not helping me because I have a different need than the other mm-hmm. family, right? And so making sure that we are meeting children and families where they are and not having a one-size-fits-all is, is a very simple application that I would suggest and recommend for any program is to think about truly think about children and their families as individuals and addressing their individual needs and understanding that one size is not going to fit all. Inclusion is ensuring that everyone has a sense of belonging, no matter how they're presenting themselves, whether they're coming to school from, like I said, one parent family, two parent family, speaking a different language, um, it's, it's making sure that they have a sense of belonging, even in situations where everyone looks the same. I would get questions um, years ago when I would do cultural competency and responsiveness, uh, professional development and training. Well, all my children are white. All my children are black, right? All my children are Asian. And even in that, <laughs> there's still individuality, right? Mm-hmm. My black household um, does not mirror my neighbors around the corner, right? Because I know for a fact that they're from Nigeria and we are, you know, here from America, right? From the United States. And so we're going to have some differences. We may look the same, we may present the same, um, but we're not. And so making sure that all families have a sense of belonging. But I want to take it a step further and think about justice and liberation. I was looking mm-hmm. at, um, and I'm pretty sure it's an image that you've seen of the the people at the baseball park and they're watching right the baseball game and it shows equality as everyone standing on the same platform trying to look over the fence right mm-hmm. um equity is making sure that the the smaller person has three crates to stand on versus the tall person doesn't need any crates to stand on because they're tall enough to see over the fence but the next step would be just removing the fence right just there is no fence you can mm-hmm. just stand on yourself stand on your platform, whether you're small or tall, and you can just see the baseball game, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I think about it as a collective, how do we ensure that we are removing unnecessary barriers to success, whether it's for that child, that family, or that educator, Mm -hmm. and ensuring that they have the same access um, that someone else, but at at a different, um, same but different, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the way that I see, think about it when I think about it as a collective. And then you talked about practical actions. When I worked in a preschool, one of the things that I pulled away from, and at first the families did not like, they were just like this little young 23, 24-year-old <laughs> is clueless. She doesn't have a clue. Um, I didn't have a clue until I turned around 30. That's when they <laughs> thought I had a clue. But um, I took a lot of like the primary colors out of the um, environments. And I also had all of the teachers prepare their environment in a way where it was a canvas. And so we used nice neutral colors and none of the boards were completely decorated with school buses and pictures that we cut out of magazines. Everything was a blank canvas. It was nice. It was, and we had plants and, you know, decorative pieces and nice plush rugs and quiet area, all the things that you would imagine in a high quality program, but it was a blank canvas. Why? Because the children that are coming into that environment this year should create the environment. Mm-hmm. So a very practical tool, I would always say, is not to put up commercial pictures and design the entire space and cover every single wall, um, even down to the dramatic play area. Why purchase you know, like pre-made box foods and canned foods from you know, a company that's selling it out a catalog where all your families cook at home. So they can bring in the box after they use it. Of course, now, mm-hmm. post-COVID, we have to disinfect it. But right. um, <laughs> back then we weren't doing that. Uh, we just brought it in. But, you know, clean out that rice box and tape it up and put it in dramatic play area. Why do we have to purchase all of these things when our families, are? they can bring the textiles, they can bring mm-hmm. the shirt that daddy wore or, you know, the, the sweater that mom wore that she doesn't want to wear anymore. That makes up the, the play state, the play area. And so thinking about a practical way is just inviting your children and your families to create your space. They will automatically feel like they belong when they walk in and see the things that they that they saw when they left home. Mm-hmm. They walk into their space and they see it represented there. That is a very practical way. But one of the things that I would find centers do after they did that part, they would stop there and not look at their policies, procedures, and protocols that guides what they do and how they interact, whether that be with families or with the community. Also down to just something that seems really simple, but not making sure that all families are represented in decision-making. Do we have a parent, you know, committee or parent council where we ensure parents from all demographics that are represented in our centers are at the table to help us make decisions on what holidays we celebrate this year? What foods do we serve the children this year? What days are we taking off and recognizing mm-hmm. all of those things? What what materials are we purchasing? What songs are we singing? What books are we buying? Um, or are we as a director sitting at our desk and flipping through a catalog and deciding? Or are we as a teacher? Um, another policy I had was budgeting. When I first came into the program, it was like, this is how much money we have on supplies. And we were very fortunate to have a great budget because we were part of the New Jersey pre-K program. And so... Typically, it was purchase all these things at the beginning of the year. And then mid-year, maybe, you know, do some touch-ups and that's it. Well, I changed that. I was like, okay, we're going to purchase all the furniture. But then I gave all of the teachers their own stipends and said, purchase what you need to purchase um, to support whatever you're doing with your children and, and your studies. So does that mean... One teacher may spend $100 on buying like apples to to cut up in the classroom because she's talking about the process of planting seeds. And someone else may, you know, purchase some boxes from Lowe's because they're doing a box study. It it, it goes all the way down to even how you budget and how Mm -hmm. you spend your funds um, for your environment. And so these are like practical things that I use um, that really worked that worked for my program. And then I incorporated that into CDA training when I did CDA training. I see you like just blew my mind because Mm -hmm. like, you know, I, like you're saying it, this is something that is a part of everything that we do, but it's also something that can easily just become like background where it's not at the forefront of why we're doing things or the decision-making process behind them. And I mean, 
I have okay so classroom wise very similar mindset I'm all for color but I loved letting the kids bring the color to the classroom Mm -hmm. so right last year I my last year there I was in the classroom as well as in the director's seat and it got a little crazy but one of the things that I did where everyone was like you are absolutely out of your mind was I made our art center on the wall so that we put this huge piece of plywood we covered it in canvas and we drilled clipboard tops into it so and then little shelves so the kids we would put out pens one week and the next week it would be colored pencils and the next week it would be you know uh paint or oil pastels or whatever and the kids could just go and art whenever they wanted and Mm -hmm. at the end of the year the whole art center looked cooler than it did when it started because (laughs) there were all these little like you could tell where the paper was and where they had totally like painted all around it um but it was so beautiful and it was theirs at the end of the year they felt like they had ownership over their classroom and over their art center and they saw it as like a collective art piece that they had created by making a mess which is the other thing that I'm very into is making making play through mess (laughs) embrace it um but I loved having things brought in from home for our dramatic play area and you know I would bring in an old coffee container or an old you know my daughter goes through yogurt pouches like she's never gonna see one again and so like the big box of go-go squeezes but when you're talking about it I'm like what an incredible way to see what foods are being eaten in different children's homes Mm -hmm. what type of clothes are being worn and giving them that ownership over their classroom in an entirely new way you know if you have a a student who's eating you know they eat a lot of rice and a student who doesn't eat a lot of rice now you you can have a conversation about like oh well in my house we eat a lot of pasta in my house we eat a lot of rice well you know why does your mom not like rice does your mom not like but you know I I just feel like the the possibilities there for that social emotional connection and that um relationship building they're just like endless you like I said you blew my mind now I'm like in 8,000 different places but (laughs) (laughs) giving the because it really boils down to these simple concepts and for teachers when we I think you know when they go when they go to trainings on equity and inclusion, of course we want to address um, doing some type of implicit bias, you know, assessment for the educator, having professional development about what all these terms mean. Um, what does it imply when we are, you know, operating in a way of injustice towards a child and families, right? Because there's serious consequences when we don't exercise equity and justice for all children and families. So we know that that there's that part. But I I think sometimes they walk away with, and now what, right? So maybe yeah. I've figured out that I do have these biases that I need to work on, or maybe I, I learned what a microaggression is. And, and I realized that I've been doing this towards my peer for the last two years or or whatever th- those those areas are, because those are hard conversations and discussions that we need to have and we must have um, if we plan to live in a just society. However, they also walk away with, but I, I'm serving two-year-olds, right? So I want them to understand their agency and as the council did, you know, put it in um a sense of culture cultural you know capital right and we want from the smallest to understand what that means what justice looks like and feels like and what belonging looks like and feels like but until we give them practical applications as simple as how do you design your art area yeah um i when i was in a program we had this big thanksgiving feast for thanksgiving but if i was to do it today that's not what i would do i would send out a survey to all my families and say, we want to celebrate, you know, this holiday and what it means to you and your family. And we're going to ask the children to vote on what do they want us to serve? So mm-hmm. instead of serving, t- you know, turkey and mashed potatoes and whatever we serve, right? If they pick nuggets and pizza and orange <laughs> juice. <laughs> that and, sounds you know, like my, fav- my and family. And apple pie, then if that's what they want, that's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate yeah. our cultures, right? In the uh, in the collective culture um, that we represent. So eat those small little things. And it really means a lot to a child when they, when they feel like their voice matters. 
and they see that their decisions were, uh, that we took action on their decisions, even if it means that we serve chicken nuggets and pizza for Thanksgiving Day. It's fine. Well, and what an incredible thing to teach a child when they're this young, that their voice matters. I mean, that is something that they're going to carry with them and need for the rest of their life. Because we've we've all been in a situation where we feel like our voice doesn't matter. And, you know, there's definitely, there's always that little voice inside that's like, it doesn't matter what you say. <laughs> and then you have people who support you in your life where you're like, no, hold on what I have to say does matter. And my voice does deserve to be heard. And, you know, being able to instill that in a child when they're so young, something that they can carry with them, whether it's to kindergarten or whether it's, you know, to a PhD later in life or into their career, or, you know, I just feel like that's such an incredible thing for them to have for us to be able to gift them that. Mm -hmm. I agree. So, Maisa, we've talked a lot about the different practical ways where we can include or try to change our mindsets towards DEI. What are some examples of individuals in the field who have really championed DEI or like, oh, that was a great example of a champion of this principle? I would say that um, a lot of work around ensuring that we don't make equity a black and white issue um, is what I'm starting to see uh, from the field. And it's important. So Asian Americans, indigenous people, our native um, indigenous people that live in our, all of those, um, sometimes we can get so caught up in equity, some kind of way turning into a race issue. Um, between black and white. And so the work that is coming from uh, different people that we're working with at the council that are representing our tribal nations, we're we're expanding our work uh, to work with that population. We were so pleased and excited and even a little bit like, wow, did did this just happen? Our 1 million CDA is an 18-year-old young woman on her way to college soon, Um, that comes from a tribal nation. And it was remarkable to see the excitement around around her success, but around the fact that um, we have have such great, I'm trying to put it into word. Um, We have such great uh, culture in this field. You know, we, everyone from an 18 year old, um, being raised in, in this beautiful, we saw some pictures from um, where her family lives. It's just gorgeous, open skies, you know, living in a, in a tribal nation and also all the way to, you know, urban areas, um, suburban, rural, migrant. We, we, I think we capture everyone in this country, in this country, in this field. And so, the work that I'm seeing that we're starting to represent and, and speak to that and, and making sure that when we talk about equity and belonging and justice, that we're not making it, well, it's a black and a white issue, right? Because it's it's truly not. It's about everyone. Every single little person <laughs> um, in this country is who early childhood represents. And there's beauty in that. Um, whether it's celebrating a holiday or just recognizing um, the richness of the culture in our field, I, I think is what I'm seeing more and more of. And I just love it. I love going to conferences and seeing that we give recognition to the land, wherever the conference is being held, mm-hmm. um, and to that tribal nation that lived on that land before um, it was uh, you know, taken away from them. Those are the type of things. And not just saying it in a little saying, but following that with education about it or maybe a, a blog post about it inviting you know people from from that culture to come and speak at the conference and just making sure that we're including everyone I just I just love to see what's happening in the field right now Maisa before we go do you have any resources that you feel like would be useful or helpful um or enlightening for Um, teachers and directors or anybody listening really to have to learn more about 
DEI and what it is and tips on how they can um, move it into the forefront of what they're doing in their classrooms and their centers. Yes, I definitely want to highlight the Children's Equity Project. Um, going to uh, sharing their website and their information and their resources. There's just vast resources there. Um, the National Black Child Development Institute is doing remarkable work around um, Afrofuturism, around um, the Black child and the Black family. Their work, their new um, CEO is, is just doing amazing work there. Uh, and of course, of course, the council, because I represent the council, our equity focused initiatives that we're working on through Jetty B, which is justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging um, are just a few. But I would love after um, the podcast to send over some more resources that you can provide to your Please. constituents and to your community. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we'll definitely highlight those and put them in the show notes and anything else you want to send. We will put it out there so that all of our listeners can find it. Maisa, this truly has been fantastic. And thank you again for taking the time to talk with us and for sharing your expertise and all your insights and, um, you know, for putting both mine and Justin's brains on a whole new track, um, which is a great thing. Part of what I love about doing this podcast is that, you know, we're putting out information for other people, but it's a way that we get to to learn and continue in our professional development and our personal development too, because these conversations, I feel like they're amazing. Like the, everyone I talk to is somebody I would want to go get coffee with and then it would turn into three hours. So it's probably good that we're on a timed podcast so that I can't keep people for that long. Um, <laughs> Cause I would. And uh, that, and it's okay. I blocked out the rest of the day. And, um, <laughs> and when we came on, I, I was trying to get my light together. So I took a few minutes away. So I owe, I owe you a few minutes. So it's all good. Well, I feel very grateful today. Like Thanksgiving was last week, but really I, I feel thankful uh, for the conversation we had about this really, really important topic and the opportunity we have to explore different pathways and do our best to empower early childhood educators. Maisa, this has been really, really wonderful. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot of value from this episode. Well, no, thanks for having me, Justin. I, um, like I said, since we've met, I always enjoy speaking with you um, and your wife and partner in this work and your beautiful children that you post on LinkedIn. They are adorable. Um, treasure every single moment because before you know it, like with my children, they'll be 16 and 21. Um, and one's graduating from college and I cannot believe it. Um, and one will be a senior. So treasure, literally treasure every single moment, every single day. Um, I started this by talking about how I got into the field because I felt like I was a little bamboozled <laughs> and I was just like, how do I get to work with young children? At best that I would not. And now it's been the greatest gift, um, for me, wherever I am. Um, my husband jokes around with me because a lost child, always finds me. Like if we're at IKEA <laughs> or an amusement park or Target, some kind of way I find the lost child because I, I truly believe that this is my life purpose um, to work in this profession and, and to serve children and families. And I plan on doing it until I can't do it anymore. So thank you so much for having me. And I'm really appreciative of the council for allowing me um, the opportunity to be, to be in this role and also to be on the podcast. And I wish you the best success. Wow, what an incredible journey we've had with Maisa today. We've explored the diverse pathways in early childhood education, and we dove deep into the crucial realm of diversity, equity, and inclusion. From understanding career opportunities to the recent DEI inclusions in the CDA process and practical tips for how we can put DEI into the forefront in our classrooms, Maisa's provided us with a wealth of knowledge today. One of the things that Maisa touched on, I just wanna highlight is that DEI is about every child. It's about removing barriers and creating safe spaces where each and every child can learn and thrive. From culture to ethnicity to special needs to mental health, this is a topic that includes everyone. And by working together with organizations like the ones Maisa mentioned, we can create communities full of diversity, equity, and inclusion. This may very well be one of my favorite episodes, but don't tell. And if you are loving the podcast more and more each episode too, 
Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on anything we have coming your way. We have one more episode left in season one, and we have big plans for season two coming to you early 2024, so you aren't going to want to miss any of it. Thank you so much for being here and supporting Out of Ratio. The community we are creating continues to put the biggest smile on my face, and I hope that one day I can meet all of you in person. But if you don't want to wait to tell me what you think of the show until then, pop down and write us a review. I promise I read them all and it fills my heart to know you are loving the show. Feel free to put topics or guests you'd like to see on the show there as well. Again, I read them all and I would love for you guys to have some ownership in this show as well. Change starts with each one of us. Until next time, keep the passion for early childhood education alive Keep advocating for inclusivity, keep learning, and remember that your voice matters in shaping the future of early childhood education. I'll see you next time.